I was just thinking, well, okay, let's see what comes. <laughs> it's uh, always a little bone-chilling, you know, to do these talks because we don't ever know what's going to come out. <laughs> and we just pray it isn't embarrassing. <laughs> Tonight is going to be a little edgy. It might be. <laughs> you know those 3 a.m. committee meetings in your head? <clears throat> you do. When you wake up and can't sleep and start reviewing your life, the whole catastrophe, and you realize you don't know anything, really. <laughs> Those are supposed to be moments of freedom. And then the next thought that comes from, well, no one knows anything else. No one else knows anything either. But that isn't really comforting. <laughs> I, in the course of the last umpty umpty years of this practice, I've arrived at uh, a response to not knowing anything. Something that I can say I know. And it is really let go. You can always know to let go. It even rhymes. I don't know, let go. <laughs> but as you've discovered in this past week, uh, letting go is a conundrum in itself. We can complicate everything, and letting go gets very complicated, mainly because the process of letting go is a paradox. It's a paradox. First, you have to let in, and then probably let out before you can let go. There's a sequence that seems to be pretty linear there. The, the letting in is a very important part. And then that's got a subheading under it. Number one, letting in A underneath that is something else called um, acceptance. Mm -hmm. Acceptance. And then the next major heading under the topic of letting go is surrender which is maha letting go, <laughs> the big time stuff. And when we're contemplating surrender, comes the understanding that we can't do that on our own. You just can't decide to surrender and have it be authentic. You wind up pretending and then 8 a.m. in the next morning, you realize the whole thing was a phony show. You didn't surrender anything, you know. 
And there it goes, how it happens again and again and again. Letting go. Acceptance and surrender. I want to talk about that. Now, one of the perks of reaching my age, <laughs> I love this, is I get to tell stories. Old guys tell stories. I don't even need a campfire. <laughs> and they are stories about guess who. <laughs> so finally, at reaching the age that I have reached, which is almost 76, I am given permission by myself to be totally narcissistic. <laughs> this is a narcissistic holiday. I'd like to invite you to join me on <laughs> I mean, how many people get this opportunity? <laughs> yeah, really. It's a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk to you. It certainly is. Before I get into the stories, though, a little bit about letting go. And I love this quote from Adyashanti a young non-dual teacher that I admire. And uh, the quote is, in order to discover the perspective of liberation, which alone transcends this entire movement of ignorance and suffering, one needs to let everything end. Letting everything end means to stand in the moment completely naked of attachment to any and all ideas, concepts, hopes, preferences, and experiences. Simply put, it means to stop strategizing, controlling, manipulating, and running away from yourself, and simply be. Finally, you must let everything end and be still. And then I want to just go on a little bit more with that because it couldn't be clearer. In letting everything end, all seeking and striving stops. All effort to be someone or to find some extraordinary state of being ceases. This ceasing is essential. It's what we've been circling around all week. It is true spiritual maturity. By ceasing to follow the mind's tendency to always want more, different, or better, one encounters the opportunity to be still. In being still, a perspective is revealed which is free from all ignorance and bondage to suffering. From that perspective, eternal self is realized. The eternal self, the seer, is recognized to be one's true nature one's very own self. Those are beautiful words. And in regard to the other part of the letting in, letting out, 
aspect of surrender, acceptance and surrender. This one that I think I read a couple of days ago by Rumi nails it completely. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. This has occurred to you every day here. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. (laughs) The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. We could live our lives very wisely just from that poem. The Guest House. I want to personalize it a bit as I said, and tell you about my guest house. See if I can do this clearly. When I was 12 years old, a kind of introspective, (coughs) shy and frightened young guy, I lived in a a very small town in upstate New York, a country, urban. Is urban country? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That happens too. (laughs) Country people, my my folks were very uh, uneducated, unsophisticated, barely grade school education both my mother and my father, and they were uh, farm workers. And my life at 12, living in this very simple environment, had become very complicated because a, a whole host of visitors had visited my guest house unbidden, and really... It wasn't that they weren't unwelcomed. I just wasn't prepared to receive them. So uh, I was troubled. And Easter Sunday morning of my 12th year, uh, I, I must have been especially troubled because I climbed a hill near my home where I could sit and overlook the village, the, the whole village. And I knew everyone who lived in everybody's house down there. And uh, although it all looked innocent and American apple pie, there, I also knew there was a darkness living there because I had encountered it already in my young life. Around age five, my mother began to act very strangely 
And when no one was around, uh, she had a leather whip. And she began beating me with this whip. And I, I, I had no idea why this was happening. I couldn't do anything but to think that she didn't like me. One day, my beloved German grandmother, her mother, had come upon the scene and stopped her from beating me and, and reprimanded her. I remember the moment very clearly. And I fell in love with my grandmother, and she was my savior, my introduction to goodness. And she taught me the Lord's Prayer. We would kneel together at the bedside when I stayed with them on their farm and say it out loud together. She was uh, a glimmer of life and love. She died that year in a horrible accident, car accident. So that had just happened. What I learned later and this is way out of sequence because I didn't really learn this later until I was 33 during my work with Ida Rolf. You know who Ida Rolf was? She was the mother of structural integration body work. She was the, the queen of body work in the days when I was in my, all my training. And she took me as a student. And during the course of her work with me, uh, spontaneously, one day in the, in the fourth session, she was working on my legs, uh, I was transported to a time when I was four and a half years old. And I knew the age that it was. And I relived an experience that when I recovered all that memory, explained why I was always so afraid of people. I had been abducted off of the street in this little town. I'd gone out to play one day and didn't come back. And uh, apparently some transient, because they never discovered who did this, had um, taken me to a shack and uh, the memories that I recovered in, at that time were, were incredibly um, gruesome. And uh, I'm not going to go into the detail of that except to say that there was torture and uh, pain and very vivid recovering of that came under Ida's hands, which sealed for me the understanding that a it's all in the body. It's all available. I uh, just had no idea where this was all coming from, and I called my mother and uh, that night, and her response to me was, why do you want to remember all that? And I said, well, I've already remembered it. What was it? And so I heard the story of what had happened. I'd been missing two days, and they found, there was a search party, and they found me naked, 
in uh, this old shack, locked in, alone. My father's best friend had found me. And the, the vivid memory I had of being found was it was my, uh, I think it was my first spiritual experience. And there was a light coming in the window. I was in total despair because I couldn't get my clothes back on. I didn't know how to dress myself. And uh, there was a face shining in from that light. It was uh, uh, my father's friend who was part of the search party calling my name. And it was like being called from heaven, Bobby. You know, I, I had been saved and restored back to the living. But my mother told me that I didn't speak for a year. Just stopped speaking totally. And uh, being very unsophisticated people and country people, and in those days all of this sort of thing was not known about at all. It's quite more common now. Um, they, they decided to let me forget about it, and they all forgot about it until these memories came back. And, and uh, later, when she was 80, my mother, God bless her, and may she rest in peace, told me that the whipping had started after that. And in her primitive but well-intentioned psychology and spirituality, she was determined to drive the evil out of me that had come from this experience. And so one did that with a whip. And when she told me that, I understood our whole relationship. You know, it's like everything made sense, and, and it was there was room for me to forgive and to let go with her. So, not knowing that on that day when I was twelve and sitting on that hill, I didn't have all that information. But what I did have was. An, an uh, uh, understanding that I was frightened all the time. Everybody frightened me. I didn't want anyone near me. To be touched was a horror. And my grandmother had just been killed in an auto accident. This was a lot. Uh, I was overwhelmed, clearly, with input of the difficult kind. And what had started, on, a, on top of all this, at, when I was 11, was uh, my father's hired man, who was 22, a young man who lived down the street, 22 years old, became my babysitter when my parents would go away. And one night, he climbed into my bed and told me that he had things to teach me that I needed to learn. And from that time on, for a number of years, I was his sexual toy. So when I was sitting on that hill, all that was very foreground, because my, 
my life was incredibly confused. I, he told me that if people knew about this, they would hate us. And that in particular, if my parents knew about it, they would kill him. And so if I didn't want him to get killed by my father, I should keep this our secret together. Well, I was a lonely kid, 11. And uh, this kind of attention, although it, was, it wasn't fun, what was happening, I uh, accepted because the attention from another, from an adult male, I was so hungry for that kind of intimacy that he became a major figure in my life very quickly. The sad part about it was that it, that relationship with him alienated me from my dear father, whom I loved a lot and who loved me. But I had this secret, and so I, I never could be wholly open-hearted with my dad. Never was. And he died very young when I was 20-something. He was 51. I never got the chance to heal that. So that, that day on the hill, I was trying to sort all this out. The relationship with, with Ozzy and the uh, fact of my grandmother's being gone and my mother being so weird and not understanding why I was frightened all the time. And in the midst of my contemplation or whatever it was that I was doing, something happened that was life-changing. Very suddenly, the universe opened up in front of me. And there, it was an incredible sense of spaciousness and a lot of light. And it was very peaceful. All my worries disappeared. And there was a kind of uh, communion with the, the divine, the mystery. And a, a, a message came to me very clearly. And the message was, you must accept everything. Your life has to do with accepting every experience that comes your way and open to it. It was very clearly, that's what it was. I don't know how long that experience was, but it was very profound. And afterwards, as, as I was walking back down the trail to my village and to my house, the, the ego self mind jumped in and said, that didn't happen. You always make everything up. That didn't happen. So I kind of blocked it away. But it, uh, the experience did not disappear and came back frequently. 
over the years. I remembered that moment, and I lived from that that message consciously. I need to just open to everything, no matter what it is. It's my business, my duty, my job. And then that began to lead to a lot more pleasant experiences. When I was 15, the family physician, who was also a surgeon in the village in a a nearby town, he had a little hospital and a surgery suite, took me under his wing and and, uh, began to mentor me. And he did that by teaching me surgery. I was 15. Saturday mornings, I would go to the operating room and holidays. All the other kids went out playing. I was in the surgical suite, standing on a wooden box because I was too short to see what was happening. And across the operating table from him, and he taught me how to make the incision and where, and how to tie the surgical knots, and how to hold his retractors. He uh, made me his acolyte, his, his chela. And this went on all through my medical school experience. We did uh, appendectomies. We did uh, a lot of gallbladder surgeries. Everybody had their gallbladder out then. You know? And we did hernia repairs. And I loved it. It started to give me some, after the experiences that I described to you, that I was trying to integrate, it started to give me uh, a sense of self-esteem and worthiness. And the relationship with him was incredibly uh, validating. I admired him very much. A, A fine man, very, very good man. And my father admired him very much, which was a very good thing, too. And so my father decided, and this had happened when I was maybe three minutes out of the womb, my father decided that I was to be a doctor, because doctors were godlike. And uh, that was the trajectory that I was on, and I never questioned it, actually until I got into pre-med and I realized, I don't like this. (laughs) Pre-med, you know, laboratories, sunny days all afternoon in biochem labs and organic chemistry. And I I don't even know how to use a slide rule. I never did learn how to use a slide rule. (laughs) My examinations, everybody else would be out in three hours, would take me six hours because I had long division that would go three pages, you know. It, it wasn't my thing, you know. And uh, I wanted to be a poet and uh, a literature professor. So I was having a little problem at the acceptance level. And the thing about acceptance is that it's very different from surrender. And this is, this is key. Acceptance has nothing to do with approval or disapproval. One can accept what you disapprove of. Acceptance means you get that it is here, and you allow it to have its presence, whatever it is. That's terribly important. 
And uh, I was resisting, accepting, and so I called home. I told my father, I want to <laughs> I, I wanna, uh, be an English professor. There was this long silence. He said, well, you can come home then because I won't pay for anything. I already had a scholarship of half the money, but I couldn't have stayed in. And, and so I surrendered. I, I, I uh, said, okay. And I went on through medical school and um, internship. And by that time, because I was so lost in my life, I quickly married in college my my school days sweetheart. We met when we were 10. And <laughs> we married at 20, not knowing anything about anything. And uh, there were babies that came. I didn't even know where they came from, you know. <laughs> you know, that's literally true. Just unconscious about all this. Going, accepting, accepting whatever it is, what comes, what comes, what comes, you know. And I went into marriage for security and a sense of belonging and connection with somebody. And we were friends, and it lasted in 20 years, three kids, and we're still friends to this day. I just saw her all Thanksgiving Day. We were together. It's how I, I got through medical school, actually, it was because of her. So I, there's a lot of gratitude. What followed next was, because there were babies, now you get I'm all the time just taking what comes. I, I, I didn't have any long-range plans. I didn't know... Uh, anything except just be here and whatever is coming down the road is what it is to be with. And uh, there was no way that she would go back to the hometown to the doctor who had been my mentor. Uh, she absolutely refused to do that. And uh, I, I couldn't go on without her. So the next thing was, well, what am I... After my internship, I need a specialty. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be a surgeon, obviously, because I'd have to do a surgical residency. and Nothing paid enough to support a family. So I went up to the Army recruiting station in Salt Lake City and said, I want to join the Army. And uh, I had heard that uh, if you join the Army as an MD, you went in as a captain, and you could get training that, and you paid back a year for a year of training. So they didn't know what to do with me. That Nobody had ever done that. And they said, come back next week. And I came back next week. And uh, there was one residency open. And uh, the, there was a place in San Francisco and a place at Walter Reed, and it was in psychiatry. So I said, well, OK, I'll be a psychiatrist. <laughs> That's how I chose my field. <laughs> so you see the drift? I was becoming a specialist at acceptance. I knew how to do that. You just suspend opinions. 
and judgments, and you do the obvious next thing. I went into the army and went into psychiatric training. And then I had seven years in the military, came out as a major. And during that time, I found myself at 29, the chief of neuropsychiatry at a huge facility. And the chief of psychiatry at an incredibly complex, big hospital. And I had a staff of a uh, hundred psychologists and social workers and enlisted people under me. I was 29 years old. I had no idea who I was, how I gotten there, or what I was supposed to do. <laughs> but it was what was given, you know. In the in the military, it all came down. If you if you didn't go AWOL, and you weren't too much of an alcoholic, and if you didn't beat your wife, so then anybody knew about it. <laughs> You know, they kept promoting, so I <laughs> I was chief of neuropsychiatry. <laughs> Major Hall, people saluted me. Yeah. Then I took a leave to come to a course in San Francisco where I had done my residency. And uh, I came across some LSD <laughs> from Ken Kesey. And uh, I took LSD. This is in 1964. And everything got turned upside down. I mean, talk about learning to surrender. There is no way, you, without suffering horribly, you can use LSD without surrendering. And there's a moment when there's no choice. And it was an incredible experience. Within a half hour, I was in white light and at the Last Supper, and Jesus was there with me. And <laughs> I, I was hoping I wasn't Judas, you know. <laughs> It was life-altering. What, what I understood was that although I was on this trajectory and didn't seem to ever have any choice about everything, at the same time, it was all um, uh, meaningful. And there was, a, there, was an, there was a large plan. And there was a sense of basic goodness that came out of that experience because I had fun for the first time in my life. I had lots of fun. I had never felt good in all the years. So I took some back with me to, <laughs> to Fort Knox. <laughs> yep. Yep. I don't know how I lived through this. Or I, 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 I could have been in the stockade for the rest of my life. I, uh, I had some enlisted men who were working as social workers under me, and we would get together and drop acid. <laughs> and there were all these young men from the Ozarks there in the infantry training, 
and they they were always going a wall and, and and they all had tattoos on their arms because I knew that because I was the stockade physician too, and they had t- tattoos on their arms that said "Born to Lose." <laughs> we decided to save them all. My, my. Uh, Every time one of them was sent to the mental hygiene consultation service, we got him out of the army. And I was, I was so happy because I was this conduit of freedom for all these people who were in the army and had made a big mistake being there. I could get everybody out but me. You know. This went on for seven years this military career <clears throat> until I'm still waiting for the next thing. I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm assistant chief of psychiatry at Letterman, which was a big army hospital here in San Francisco. I was training young psychiatrists at that point. And uh, this, uh, you ever hear of Fritz Perls? <clears throat> the father of gestalt therapy. Moses in the psychology world. He spies me across the room at Esalen one day, started staring at me. I was there, I had written a book of poetry that was big time on the Haight-Ashbury in 1966. It was called Flapping Your Arms Can Be Flying. (laughs) It had been reviewed in the Rolling Stone. Jan Winner had reviewed it, glowing. Ken Kesey had written the blurb on the back of the fly jacket, and I, you know, big deal. I was somebody, and he was staring across the room at me, and at one point, I knew who he was, and I had seen him do a dream seminar in which, well, I have, I should describe briefly that, you'll see how he was for me. He was on a stage, and he was doing a uh, work with dreams. Uh, There were maybe a hundred people there to observe this. And he asked for someone to come up and work with him in this very bird-like, timid, I don't know how she even got up on the stage, a woman came up to work on her dream with him. And, and he said, tell me the dream. And the dream was that she was Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. And he said, be her. And all of a sudden, I don't know how he did this still, all of a sudden, she's belting out the rain in Spain comes mainly on the plane. She was a diva right before my eyes. And then she stopped and looked down and realized what had happened. She began to weep, and I began to weep, and uh, I had never seen anything like it. I was at a point of despair about being a psychiatrist at this point. I had been in uh, analysis for years, and it was like nothing happening. And there was this guy who did this, Fritz Perls. And he's sitting across the room staring at me. He walked over, stood next to my chair. My mother's voice came in my head, respect elders, respect elders. I stood up, and a moment of surrender came that has totally changed my life. I'm looking into his eyes. And the next thing I know, we're in a deep embrace, and he whispers in my ear, 
come and work with me. Out of nowhere. I said, yes. But I, I had to get out of the army to do that, which was a whole other story. I knew. But I did get out. And it was when I was w training with him and learning surrender to a teacher. And for me, it had to be from love. I loved him profoundly. And uh, I surrendered to him. And he was not a nice man. He was really a dirty old man, and he was mean, and he insulted people and humiliated people, but he was nice to me. He was, he was always good to me. Uh, in that surrender, where there, there were times when working with him, when uh, I, I think the, the ego self was very minimally present for the very first time. And um, he taught me the importance of now, always now. If anyone asks why, change it to how. Now and how, now and how. It was an incredible experience to be with him. There are some people here who were there then and, and, and knew the, him these times. He taught me the importance of now, and the more I experienced that exploration, the more my heart opened. And I began to realize the importance of love in, in any kind of therapy, in any kind of human relationship. Ida was his best friend, and, and they double-teamed me. He worked on my mind, and she worked on my body. And uh, I came out the other end like a butterfly, you know, out of a cocoon. Such a, such a grace, such a privilege to have fallen into the clutches of these two geniuses. And I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have any idea what had happened. I never looked for a teacher. I never even wanted one. They grabbed me. And then there would be the, the acceptance, sometimes with resistance, but the acceptance. Bukowski. Bukowski. You have to accept this reality whether you sit at a punch press all day or whether you work in a coal mine or whether you come home exhausted from a cardboard box factory to find three kids bouncing dirty tennis balls against the walls of a two-room flat as your fat wife sleeps while the dinner burns away. <laughs> Only Bukowski. You have to accept this reality, which includes enough nations with enough nuclear stockpiles to blow away the very center of the earth and to finally liberate the devil himself with his spewing red fire of liquid doom. 
You have to accept this reality as the madhouse walls bulge and break and the terrified flood our ugly streets. You have to accept terrible reality. Which became very cogent after my time with Fritz, and I, I became I, I discovered the American dream of success: seven bedroom house, swimming pool, tennis court, three kids, three dogs, at least that many cars, and I worked night and day. I was always working uh, to, I guess, to keep it all going. I don't know. And I, I became very depressed. And what was clear to me that my time with Fritz and Ida had been wonderful, but there was something missing I, I, that I obviously wasn't getting, and it was the spiritual dimension. Fritz always condemned meditation. He said, it, it's neither shitting nor getting off the pot. <laughs> Which is true. It is. <laughs> well, it was at the, the lowest time of that period where I was near suicidal, maybe I had thoughts, when uh, it was like, was this all there is? This, this is it? I, some, some more magical stuff happened, and I... I uh, encountered my spiritual, my first spiritual teacher, and wound up in India. And uh, this was another lesson in acceptance and surrender. I was there with him for four months, and I saw miracles happen that I. It, if I told people about them, everybody would think I was insane. Well, <laughs> he taught me to meditate, and the method of meditation was listening. What I've spoken about in here, listening inside to the logos, the sound, the, the spirit, the uh, the word that which precedes language and matter, the uh, predecessor to sensations, the vibratory sound, taught me to listen to it, to find, to tune into it. it was, uh, the moment of surrender to him came one day around four in the morning, deep in meditation, and all of a sudden, with my eyes closed, he visited me. There he was, in magnificent color. It only lasted a few moments, but it was a benediction for me. And um, it only happened because there was no me there at that moment for that to occur. I'd gotten out of the way that, that much grace to get out of the way. 
and it's it set me with certainty and without doubt on the spiritual path that there are other dimensions I believe there is the dimension where the word birds go to die and the little bones and the little feathers are there and this it's all bigger than we have any capability of knowing it's unimaginable no doubt about that so years and years now of practice and teaching and you know jack and joseph and buddhism john brought that into my life one day i'm in in my doing my body work practice in mill valley and uh, john brings this tall skinny guy kind of disoriented he'd just been 10 years in india and had wrenched his back picking up his suitcase and john brought him to me to fix his back was joseph goldstein and we became very close friends and then met jack at the same time joseph did and uh, we were all in the cauldron then at the beginning of what it is you're experiencing here in this beautiful manifestation the, the buddhism in america and i started doing retreats and a lot of them and because i loved meditation by that time so getting more and more from the acceptance part of all this to the surrender part of it the surrender part of it comes when uh, the war is over inside it comes when the, in those moments when uh, the me is taking a holiday for some reason it's not there obstructing things surrender real surrender comes and it's not something you can uh, order up it happens if you're available maybe and this work is what makes it available makes you available first time i started realizing that i'm sitting in meditation and all of a sudden a roman soldier pulls up in front of me in a chariot with a leather breastplate and a helmet and and, and uh, i mean realer than you and me and points at me and says my name is Jagatana I have a message for you the message is and this is at a time when I really needed this I was deeply into fear of death he said the message is human beings are life seeds like all seeds there's an outer husk and shell the body and the ego self and the inner germinal center and when he said inner germinal center i saw that that little bud that comes i now i'm i eat voraciously lentil sprouts <laughs> i do I, I grow them by the bushel because i like seeing those little things sprout he said the inner germinal center contains life everlasting pointed at me again and said go there and disappeared 
Now, that's a teaching. <laughs> I didn't think that up. And then they're followed, they're followed. Uh, and for all of us who, who do this regularly, these experiences come, moments of, of uh, expanded awareness of belonging, of the universal um, oneness, of uh, the disappearance of separation. And those moments are unimaginable. The, the me-self doesn't have the capacity to understand that, or even to describe it, because it isn't there during those times. It's unimaginable, but they happen. A few years ago, one morning, I'm alone in my house, surrender, coming unbidden, step out of the shower, and all of a sudden, I don't know who I am. There is no Robert, and I don't, I can't, there's no way of even conveying this. There was no history of Robert. There was no um, person, there was no anybody, just awareness. Com just awareness. This body walked over to the window and looked out, and the familiar scene that I look out on every day, I had never seen before. It was absolutely new, shimmering light, shimmering. So the, the only reaction that there was somebody there to react was awe. It was like, oh, what is this? Walked around, touched chairs. Oh. Had no idea what anything was. Was truly a newborn. Not even that. Just awareness. Stopped in front of a bookshelf. There was a photograph of my six grandchildren there. Looked at the photograph and I was back, Robert. Attachments. Attachments. Yeah. I, I'm running out of time here, but I can't resist just a little bit. When that happens, then everything, all the struggle, all the striving, all the thinking, all the figuring, all the surround, surrendering, all the letting go, all the grabbing hold of, all the praying, all the begging, all the cursing, too, is just a distraction. And only then is it seen that the person was, is, and ever will be no more than a thought. With a single thought, the person seems to reemerge. With more thoughts, the world seems to reemerge right out of nothing. But now you know it's all made up. All of which, I think, is to say, it's worth it. <laughs> the pain, the struggle, the self-recrimination, it's worth it. Accept, surrender, let go, surrender. No. That's all we know. 
take a moment to be quiet. And really thank you for your attention. This old grandpa has had his moment of storytelling. <laughs> Walking. Back to the routine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.